Here at Trident, catching fish isn't just our business. It's our livelihood. It's our calling. Our mission stands by this. We are a family of fishermen, acting as protectors of the source, as we strive to make fish the food of the future. But how did we get here? Let's rewind to 1961, where the story of Trident Seafoods begins, when a 19-year-old kid with nothing but a dream drove an old Ford from Tennessee to Seattle in search of a great adventure at sea. Bundrant could have never imagined how far that little adventure was going to take him. Listen on as John Van Am reads, North to Alaska, the trail starts here. Chapter 1, North to Alaska, the trail starts here. It was all Charlie's idea. This was his dream to do this, and being all of 19 years old, it seemed interesting to me. That's how Chuck Bundrant's high school chum, Larry Kemper, recalled their plan to drop out of Middle Tennessee State College at semester break and point the headlights of an old station wagon toward the Pacific Ocean and work their way up to Alaska to find their fortunes. It was midwinter, 1961. Recalling the trip nearly 50 years later, Kemper said he never made it to the land of king crab and Kodiak bears himself, but he remembered the fire in Bundrant's gut and the determination to succeed. Another thing he couldn't forget was Bundrant's ability to persuade people to do things they wouldn't normally do. It was a talent that would serve Bundrant well throughout his career in the fishing industry. Back in Tennessee that winter of 61, Chuck was already honing his motivational skills. He didn't need much convincing himself. After watching John Wayne's movie, North to Alaska, and hearing of another student who'd earned enough to put himself through school by working summers in Alaska, Chuck was eager to face the challenge of the last frontier, bank some money, and cash in on the adventure of hunting, fishing, and trapping. Bundrant wasn't ready to go it alone just yet, so the first order of business was to recruit Kemper and two other boys from Tennessee to partner up in the journey. I just started listening to him, Kemper recalled, and I thought, well, maybe I should do this. He kept saying there was a lot of money to be made if we could make some success of it, but the whole plan was kind of vague at that point, really. I can tell you, my parents weren't happy about it. We'd been in the grocery store business four generations. They had the grocery store, and I had a job, and I kind of run out on them a little bit, but I wasn't gone long. We pulled our money and bought this station wagon. We figured if we had a station wagon, we could sleep in it if worse comes to worst, and that's what we did a few nights. We were fortunate to find it. I think we gave less than $300 for that car, and it was pretty dependable, considering what we did with it. When we got to Seattle, I'll never forget we just parked that car in the middle of the city, in the middle of the night, and here we were all sleeping in that car. And I remember waking up the next morning and looking around and there were people everywhere walking up and down the street. And they were all looking at the four of us in this car wondering, where did these guys come from? As Kemper said, he wasn't away from home for long and neither were the other two boys who'd come along for the ride. Times were tough out west, and 
The future didn't look so rosy from the low angle of a crowded mattress in the back of the 53 Ford. Back then, we were in a recession. Things were tough, Kemper recalled. There were a lot of people laid off. California had all kinds of unemployment and Seattle wasn't much better. There were a lot of people looking for work and things were slow. You had to scratch for what you got and there was a lot of competition. Kemper's steady job back at the family grocery store was looking pretty good. Fueled by Bundrant's enthusiasm, he'd hoped to find work right away and get on with their mission to capture success. But the dreary Northwest climate was putting out the fire. I got fearsome of the whole situation, Kemper recalled. I saw it moving real slow. I was looking for something I could get my teeth into a little quicker and it wasn't gonna happen. I think it rained every day we were there. I didn't like that much either. So I turned around and come back home. I sowed that seed and came back to work in the grocery store business, and that's what I've been doing all my life. Chuck Bundrant would have his own misgivings about leaving home, but his personal second thoughts came much later. Bundrant was determined to succeed, and Kemper knew it. He watched him work during high school. Charlie was really highly motivated by his parents, Kemper remembered. I believe his dad really, really wanted him to do well in life, and he put pressure on Charlie. Actually, looking back at our high school days, Charlie had his nose to the grindstone all the time. We were all out doing stuff, I mean. I was on the basketball team and one thing and another, and there's no doubt Charlie could have done some of the things the rest of us did. He was pretty thin and wiry. He had the athletic ability to do it, but he was working at that grocery store across the street from North High School, and Charlie never had a lot of free time to associate with all of us. He was working a lot. I don't know how many hours he worked over there at that store, but it seemed like he was over there an awful lot. Kemper had that right. Chuck managed to put in 40 hours a week at the grocery store when high school was in session. And during the summer, he added on another job at the local gas station. Between the two, he could log 80 hours a week in the summer. He could handle the long hours, but the dollars weren't adding up to what Bundrant would call success. Being successful was important to Chuck. His father, Charles Lawson Bundrant, had made certain of that. He delivered part of the lesson by example. As a salesman for General Foods, he traveled extensively, worked hard, and earned a promotion that took his family from Memphis, Tennessee to Evansville, Indiana. He took pride in his capacity to buy a nice home and support his family. He demanded a lot from himself, and he demanded a lot from his son. Charles Lawson considered a good education critical to his son's success, and he wasn't shy about letting Chuck know it. One particular piece of that message has motivated and haunted Chuck throughout his life. He always told me, if you don't get a college education, you're going to end up digging a ditch. Chuck's drive to succeed was shaped by another adult mentor, Luther Kane, manager of Economy Foods, the grocery store where Chuck worked after school. Chuck still refers to him as Mr. Kane and recalls how he applied a different kind of leverage using encouragement to build Chuck's confidence as he gave him increasing responsibility from bagging groceries to stocking shelves and eventually to working the cash register. Mr. Kane taught me that the customer is always right, Bunnett recalled. He also taught me the value of teamwork and I gave him credit for making me feel proud. Bundrant's pride and confidence manifested itself early when he founded his first company while he was still in high school. 
The Charlie Bundrant Company focused on a single product, invented by Bundrant and manufactured at Chuck's house, with the assistance from his mother, Algie Bundrant. Designed to alleviate the hassle of brushing off snow and scraping an icy windshield every morning in the Midwest winter, Charlie's frost-proof windshield protector consisted of a piece of 6 mil polyethylene plastic attached to a length of clothesline. Chuck's mother hemmed the clotheslines into the plastic sheets on her sewing machine, and Chuck bagged the products and distributed them to local stores and gas stations. The unique feature of the product was the line that allowed users to attach the ice screens to their cars and keep them from blowing away in the wintry blast. All they had to do was pull the lines tight and shut the lines in the door. The marketing copy painted the picture. A frost-free windshield all winter long for only $1.98. I sold hundreds of them, Bunnett recalled, before Sears Roebuck came out with their own model that had an elastic line on the top and the bottom. After graduating from North High School in the spring of 1960, Chuck hoped that he could improve the prospects for his future at Middle Tennessee State. His plan was to pursue a career as a veterinarian until he started doing the math. The vet option wasn't adding up. I found out I needed a $100,000 investment to make $10,000 a year, Bunnett recalled. The reality of hanging up a shingle as a veterinarian was years away. It didn't appear to be worth the time or the money to stick it out, and Chuck knew there was no way he was gonna let his father pick up the tab. As Chuck recalled it, my dad worked his butt off for my education, and he wanted me to account for every penny of it. Chuck was a man in a hurry to make it on his own. It was time to put the pedal to the metal. It was the end of the semester in the winter of 1961, He'd been in school since September. One semester, Chuck's mother said, recalling the day he came home to tell his parents he was quitting school and setting out for Alaska. A proud woman, slight of build but infused with the strength of Jesus and pride in her family, Algie Bundrant was a classic Southern blend of hospitality and decorum, spiced by a dash of call it like she sees it, without spilling too many words along the way. We were let down, she said. We didn't want him that far away from home, but we wanted whatever was best for him. He tried to explain to us what it was about. This boy he knew had gone to Alaska and worked a season and made enough money to go back and pay for school back in Murfreesboro. We didn't care for that, but you want the best for your kids. I don't think he had any idea how much it was gonna involve danger but he didn't let us know how dangerous it was when he called us. Everything's okay, he'd say. I'm working. He kept in touch. He would call us when he was in port. That was one of the things about it. He did that for us, so we just trusted in the Lord to take care of him. So with a full tank of gas, $350 in cash, and the Lord's blessing, Chuck Bundrant pulled out of the driveway of that family home in Evansville bound for the West Coast. He'd never been aboard a fishing boat, much less driven one out of a harbor, but the wheel of that Ford might just as well have had wooden spokes on it. Nobody comes back from a fishing trip without a sea story to tell, and the road trip to Seattle was no different for Bundrant. It was the start of a journey he would never forget. 
We headed out in a 53 Ford station wagon, loaded with everything we owned, all of our worldly possessions, bound for Alaska, Chuck recalled. We took the lower route across the country, Route 66, because of the weather. We figured we'd run into snow coming across Highway 10 up north, so we took Route 66 to California. All along the way, we had our share of experiences. The first night out, we pulled into a little place in Missouri with a black pot-bellied stove. It was a combination gas station and grocery store, and there were a bunch of local hillbilly types hanging around the stove. We came in to buy something to eat on the road, some of those little Vienna sausages in a can. As soon as we walked in, they all started looking at us funny, asking questions about who we were and what we were doing there. Then the cops showed up with their guns drawn. They were going to lock us up in jail because somebody had held up a store down the road and shot somebody. They were driving a 53 Ford station wagon too. We thought our trip was over before we got going. But fortunately, they were able to get hold of my dad and verify that we were actually in Indiana the night this terrible thing happened. I can't recall the names of the two guys that left out of Tennessee with us, but Larry Kemper was the one from Evansville, and as it turned out, he didn't have it in his heart to be away from his family. As for the two guys from Tennessee, one of them had never been out of state, and the other had never been out of the county. They could drive stick shifts, but they weren't too worldly when it came to reading maps and driving down the road. So I drove just about all the way across the country. Larry couldn't drive a stick shift, so the majority of the driving was left up to me. By the time we got to California, we were running low on money. So I got a job in a circus. We would move every few weeks from one location to another in Southern California. So I was tearing down the rides and working as a circus hand for a week or two, and I made enough money to buy us gas to make it to Seattle. We rolled into town, and after sleeping in that station wagon the first night, we found a rooming house on Western Avenue, the Call Apartments. We pulled our money, and I think the rent was $35 a month for that three-room apartment. That's not a lot of money today, but in those days, it was a lot of money. I went out and got a job the next day. The other guys, for some reason, just didn't have the enthusiasm to go out and find work. After about a week or two, they said they wanted to go home. I can't remember whether they went back on a train or a bus, but I never saw those two guys from Tennessee again. Though I did meet Larry Kemper's wife later on, and she said she didn't know whether to thank me or kill me for sending him back. The very first job I had was working as a mechanics helper for Renault at the Port of Seattle. Renault was shipping French cars over here and they had a bunch of problems with them. I had to change transmissions and do all sorts of repairs. Every once in a while, a whole load of them would come in on a ship to the Bell Street Terminal and we'd have to drive them down south to a lot on Highway 99. As it turned out, I never got paid for the first 45 days. So that $350 I'd left home with was wearing mighty thin, and I was pretty broke. Thankfully, my landlady would see me go to work every day clean and come home dirty. So she knew I was working, and she spotted me my rent for about six weeks. That's when I started calling her Aunt Dean. 
I was thankful to get the extension on my rent, but I was hurting for food too, and I was getting pretty hungry. As luck would have it, we were driving these Renaults past some pallets loaded with cases of salmon. 48 one-pound tall cases of salmon. That was the standard pack for a case of salmon in the industry. Anyway, the guy I was working with had a family, and he hadn't been paid yet either. So he said, you watch and I'll get us a case of salmon. Well, I figured there was nothing really wrong with that, but it turns out he stuck two cases of salmon into my car without me knowing it. If I'd known that I was part of a heist when I was driving through the guard shack, I'd have had a heart attack. But I'd have looked so guilty, I'd never have made it. But I didn't know it until afterwards, when he pulled his car over before we got to the Renault repair place and said, let me put that salmon into my car. I said, what do you mean, put the salmon into your car? And he said, you've got the salmon. After that, I was making salmon sandwiches for breakfast, salmon for lunch, and salmon for dinner. I was riding the bus quite a bit in those days too, so I'd sit in the back of the bus and trade kids salmon sandwiches for their peanut butter and jelly. I didn't know it then, but canned salmon was going to play a big part in my future. Some folks still prefer to believe the story that Chuck came out to Seattle following the footsteps of Elvis Presley from Tennessee to the 1962 World's Fair. Of course, all legends have a grain of truth, and this one is no exception. I first saw Elvis in 1954, I think it was, when he was playing in Memphis, Chuck recalled. I was a kid playing baseball in a doubleheader at the ballpark, and at halftime, Elvis was there to provide the music. These were the really early days, and, but that sort of thing happened regularly in Tennessee and all over the South. Live music was common, and Musicians and singers were real people. After his show, I went out to his car, and all the girls were whooping and hollering and chasing after him, but I was thinking I'd better keep playing baseball because I couldn't sing or dance. Then, eight years later, here we are, both in Seattle. Elvis was filming the movie It Happened at the World's Fair, and they were looking for stand-ins. My mom still got my paycheck stubs from MGM, where well, they paid me to be one of those stand-ins. I think it was $8 a day. You'd get into the fair free, and they gave you a little food too. So I was off to the races there for a few days. You'd do just about anything you could to survive. Later on, Bill Buck was out here with me. He was another fellow who came out from Evansville to find work. What he did find was one of Elvis's girlfriends. He had a two-bedroom apartment at the same place, the Call Apartments, down on Western Avenue, one block below First. Bill was pretty excited about the opportunity. You gotta stay away tonight, he told me. I've got this beautiful blonde coming over. Well, I was trying to oblige him, and I stayed up at the corner tavern until 11.30 or 12 o'clock, but I was getting tired. So I went back home, and there they were, arguing. Bill had a flat-top haircut at the time, and she took a raw egg and cracked it open right on his head. Then he turned around and cracked an egg into that platinum blonde hair. I'll never forget that. But I was beat, and I had to tell him, party's over. You guys got to get out of here. I'm going to sleep. 
The next job I got was at the A&P grocery store in Greenwood. I'd had some prior experience working at the grocery in Indiana. I knew how to check and stock shelves, so I was making enough to pay the rent. In my spare time, I'd go down and hit the docks, trying to find a job going to Alaska. I'd come out to Fisherman's Terminal every Saturday, riding the bus. I didn't know anybody, and if you weren't Scandinavian or Croatian, you didn't have much luck. Finally, one day, Jerry Oaksmith was getting his hair cut over at the wharf. I asked the barber and Jerry, who I didn't know at the time, if they knew of any jobs. Jerry said, wait for me to get done with my haircut, and I'll take you over and introduce you to someone. That's why I was always very partial to Jerry Oaksmith. He took me over and introduced me to Bill Ritter of Panalaska Fisheries. The next day I was on a plane to ADAC as a process worker making $1.47 an hour aboard the Mercator, owned by Panalaska Fisheries. I worked way out there busting freezers. ADAC is way out there. If you stand facing a wall map of North America and reach your left hand out as far as you can, the island of Adak is at the tip of your index finger, roughly 430 miles southwest of Dutch Harbor. Adak is closer to the Russian seaport of Petropavlovsk than it is to Anchorage. Bustin' Freezers was definitely an entry-level position in the king crab industry. In fact, most of Chuck's days and nights were spent far below the entry level of the floating processor Mercator, down in the bottom of the freezer hold stacking 60-pound cases of king crab meat. Back in 1961, restaurants didn't serve king crab in the shell, so the 90-man crew aboard the floater worked in cramped quarters on a circuitous line that first cooked the live crab and then progressively removed all of the meat from the shoulders and leg sections. The leg meat was squeezed out between hand-fed rollers and other pieces were picked or shaken from the various segments. Once the meat was clean and free from shell, it was packed into 15-pound trays and frozen between layers of ammonia-filled freezer plates, which were arranged in horizontal rows from the floor to the ceiling. The metal trays were packed with crab and inserted between the plates from one side of each bank of freezers. Once frozen, the trays had to be broken loose by the crew working the other side. This crew was also responsible for slamming the trays upside down on a table to release the 15-pound blocks of frozen crab. It was back-breaking work because the lowest tier of plates was right down on the deck and the top tier was up high. Since freezing the crab meat was the slowest part of the process, it was important to unload, load, and cycle the freezers as fast as humanly possible. To keep busy while the next batch of crab meat was freezing, the Buston crew was also responsible for packing four of the frozen 15-pound blocks into 60-pound master cases and hand-stacking the cases in the freezer hold at the very bottom of the ship. The temperature in the hold was constantly below zero, and the working garb was a far cry from the high-tech thermal-layered fleece of a modern freezer suit. Bundren had to rely on multiple layers of long underwear, jeans, flannel shirts, and wool socks. There was no forklift or overhead electric trolley. Mechanical advantages were few, and the ideal physical stature for a freezer buster 
included a stocky, muscular build and a thick layer of body tissue to keep the cold as far away from the bones as possible. Chuck, on the other hand, was the tall, skinny kid from Tennessee. But what he lacked in body mass, he made up for in determination. Hard work in the freezing cold wasn't the only challenge to Bundren's spirit in Alaska. I was down on the dock, Bundren recalled, when a worker on deck set a lit welding torch on top of a 55-gallon drum of fuel. The explosion set him on fire, and he jumped into the water. I heard the boom and ran to do what I could. He was burned so badly that the skin came off his arm when I tried to pull him out. He didn't make it. I'll never forget another time when we heard that someone was missing from the boat. I don't know for sure how it happened, but he'd fallen into the water and was unable to get himself out. When they found him, he was dead, with his arms still wrapped around a piling. I stayed until the Mercator was filled up, and then another vessel, the Alaska Trader, came in. And I stayed a few more weeks working on that one before we sailed it back home to Seattle. The skipper was a drunk. The mate was a guy named Ted Jacobson, who took a liking to me because I was sober. I remember thinking to myself, man, if I was Pan-Alaska Fisheries, I'd sure be worried about all of that valuable cargo. We had a whole season full of crab meat in that hold. As it worked out, Ted and I ran the boat down to Seattle because the skipper was drunk all the time. We stopped at a string of ports along the route home in places like Dutch Harbor, Sandpoint, and Kodiak. I remember there was a hell of a bar fight in Kodiak. We even anchored up in Akatam one night. That was the first time I saw the harbor, and I didn't have a clue it means so much to me now. I was hooked on Alaska by the time we got back to Seattle. The engineer on that trip was another waterfront character named Dirty Doug Logan. I'd worked hard and saved all my money. And when we got back down to Seattle, he talked me into investing what was my life savings in a boat, a salmon gill netter named the Almeida. Summer was coming on and he said the fleet was getting ready for a big season in Cook Inlet. He didn't need a limited entry permit in those days, just a boat. A gambler named Sinai had won it in a card game up in Seward, Alaska. He was the gambler who ran the game at the Palace Bar at the time. I couldn't find a boat in Seattle that was headed for Seward, so I bought a plane ticket to Anchorage and hopped a bus down the highway to Seward. Now this Alameda was a piece of rot, but I learned how to caulk and replace planks and helped overhaul the engines. This guy Logan was staying up there in the Palace Hotel and I was staying down on the boat, of course, doing all the work. Logan, who was supposed to be a partner in financing this operation, kept saying, my money's coming. I'll get my money soon. Well, pretty soon my money was all gone, and he disappears after telling me he's got some fishing gear lined up in Seldovia. And like a dummy, I called my buddy Bill Buck of the platinum blonde omelet fame who was still in Seattle to come up and help me. Instead of hiring a good experienced deckhand, I hired Bill, God bless him. Bill came up and made the trip with me. We're lucky we're both alive. God protects fools and little children. We sailed out of Seward bound for Seldovia. 
All my navigating experience had been from looking over somebody's shoulder, trying to figure it out. But every time I'd lay a course, it seemed I'd lay it right into a mountain, and I thought, man, there's something wrong here. We travel at night, and how we ever got to Seldovia, roughly 200 nautical miles away, I don't know. Only by the grace of God. Eventually, I found out why the compass wasn't working so well. I'd had a magnetic flashlight stuck right to it. When we got to Seldovia, I ran into Nielsen's cannery to pick up the nets Logan had lined up. We're not giving you any nets, Early Nielsen told me. That boat's a piece of crap, and you don't have any experience. Years later, Erling and I became very good friends, and I developed a lot of respect for him. But that first meeting was the first time I threw my hat on the deck. I threw my hat on the deck and raised all sorts of hell. Finally, he said, Okay, there's three shackles of gear up in that gear locker. It's yours. Well, we took it out, and there were the three shackles of gear with holes you could drive a truck through. I was out there doing my best, trying to mend this web up and get it on the boat. But where I really ran out of steam was when they wouldn't work on my power roller. Nobody would work on my boat because we didn't have the money to pay for it. So I sailed over to Halibut Cove, where a guy named Slim Tishner said he'd work on it. Turned out to be a very lucky move, though I wasn't aware of it at the time. It was the 4th of July, and that was the night that Clem Tillian came back in from Seldovia alone and fell over the side of his boat. His head was down and his hip boots were full of water. I got him with a pike pole and pulled him out and rowed him ashore and as it turned out, he proved to be a guy well worth saving. He told me at the time, hey boy, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. What Chuck didn't know at the time was that Clem Tillian was on his way to become one of Alaska's most influential politicians. Being a fisherman and a politician is nothing new to Alaska, since commercial fishing is the state's largest private sector employer. Alaska's coastal communities are economically dependent on fishing and fish processing to the same degree that cities like Seattle are dependent on large corporations such as Boeing and Microsoft. Tillian's career in the Alaska legislature spanned 18 years, including seven terms in the State House and two in the Senate. As it turned out, Chuck pulled a big fish aboard that evening with a pike pole, and it was a night to remember not just because it was the 4th of July, 1963. I called him about 10 years later, when the Billiken Bill was being passed by the Alaska legislature, Bundert recalled. It had already gone through the House and the Senate. Clem was president of the Senate, and all he had to do was sign it. My partner, Mike Jacobson, had already gone up two or three times, talking to people he knew to try to stop it but nobody could help us out. At the time Bundrant fished Clem Tillian out of the drink in Seldovia, the 135-foot Billiken, flagship of Trident Seafoods, hadn't been dreamed of. As some readers may know, the vessel, christened in 1973, was Alaska's first modern king crab catcher processor. It was a bold departure in crab processing and a huge financial risk for independent fishermen like Chuck Bundrant and his original partners, Corey Ness and Mike Jacobson, along with the Gilman brothers, 
Bob and Aaron from Vita Foods. Their idea was to harvest and process their own crab and bypass the need to deliver live product to the entrenched old guard processors on the beach. Needless to say, some of those same old guard processors weren't happy with the prospect of being bypassed by upstarts like Bundra, and they were supported by shoreside fishermen and processing plant workers who wanted to protect local jobs on shore. So with the help of their friends in the Alaska legislature, the processors set out to protect themselves by introducing a law that would have made it illegal for vessels like the Billiken to operate anywhere in Alaska waters. It became known as the Billiken Bill, and that bill was the legislation awaiting Clemtillion's signature when Bundrant walked into his Juneau office in 1973. The bill outlawed fishing and processing on the same vessel and was sponsored by some of my illustrious competition, Bundrant recalled. All the guys in PSPA, Pacific Seafood Processors Association, all the heavyweights, the Brindles and Alaska Packers, those guys didn't want to see me do this. Mike Jacobson had called in all the friends and legislators that he knew from the interior, but they couldn't do us any good. So I flew up to Juneau, and I went in to see Mr. Tillian. I remembered this guy, but he didn't remember me. I said, Mr. Tillian, do you know this Billiken Bill is going to kill me? And he said, son, there's not a thing I can do about it. Not a thing. It's done. I said, Mr. Tillian, you wouldn't be where you're at if it wasn't for me. He said, how's that boy looking over his glasses? I said, you remember July 4th, 1963? Do you remember that date? Halibut Cove? You fell over the side and said, boy, if there's anything I can ever do, let me know. Well, I said, this boy's asking. He looked over his glasses and slammed his fist on the desk and said, Thank you, son. The bill's dead. But you've got to promise me you'll never fish in the Gulf of Alaska, which I never did. Fish crab with the billiken in the Gulf of Alaska. And he killed the bill. If he hadn't done that, I'd have been dead. So with a promise and a handshake from Bundrant, Tillian was able to protect his local constituents in the Gulf of Alaska and still pay a debt to the kid who'd saved his life. If Bundrant hadn't grabbed that pike pole in Halibut Cove on Independence Day, 1963, Clem Tillian would have perished, and all the changes that he eventually brought to the Alaska fisheries, such as individual fishing quotas and community development quotas, would have perished right there with him. But as it turned out, Clem was still breathing air on July 5th, 1963, while Chuck Bunnert was trying to gear up his dilapidated gill netter and start making some money. I was still trying to get my boat worked on, Bunnert recalled. The salmon season was going on and I knew I had to get going. But I woke up one morning and there was a pinhole leak in the gas tank and it had all drained into the bilge. Bill Buck was about ready to flip his lighter when I smelled the gas. It would have been all over. And it still was as far as the boat and gill netting operation was concerned. I managed to get the boat back to Seward and turned it back into the gambler. 
I was flat ass broke, but the gambler had another proposal. I feel sorry for you, he said. Tell you what I'll do. I'll spot you $20 to play cards and anything you win over $20, it's yours. He was looking for people to sit in on his card game. And we did that for five nights in a row. He had bigger fish to fry than me. I made enough to buy myself a set of clothes and get myself to where I wasn't destitute. And that's when I ran into the Birch Brothers. <laughs>